Welcome to Russian History Retold, episode 159, Leo Tolstoy, Boyhood and Youth. Last time, we covered the childhood and early boyhood of famed author Leo Tolstoy. Today, we start with the move to Kazan with his siblings after the death of their father. I'd like to start today with a round of thanks to all of you who graciously donated to the podcast. It's really gratefully appreciated. To those of you who haven't yet, there's still a place for you to go, no matter how small, just to help out. Go to the blog site at www.russianrulershistory.com and hit the PayPal button and donate whatever you can. Really appreciate it, and thanks again to all the listeners who did already. Now, before we get to the Tolstoy family, let's talk a little bit about the town of Kazan. If you remember a few years ago in the Ivan the Terrible series, we recounted the siege of Kazan as an important event in the growth of Russia. Ivan IV actually got his moniker, the Terrible, because of his victory over the Tatars. For centuries, the Tatars were the scourge of the Russian countryside. While the Russians had defeated them at the Battle of Kulikova in 1380, it wasn't until 1552 under Ivan that Kazan was finally bought under the suzerainty of Moscow. Previous to that, Tens of thousands of Russians almost every year have been captured during raids by the Kazan Tatars and sold into slavery. These raids were burned into the psyche of the Russian people and was to create an animosity that would last for centuries and still goes on to this very day. In Tolstoy's Kazan, there was a rift both physical and emotional between the native Tatars and the Russians. The town had a population that made it a pretty good-sized place for 19th century Russia, but it was nowhere near being considered a large city like Moscow, St. Petersburg. The Tatars stayed away from the Russians and vice versa. The high society of Kazan was a bored bunch, a society that Leo and his family were very much part of. Living with his aunt and uncle now, the Yushkovs, being a social butterfly was not only expected, but encouraged. Pelagaya and Vladimir Ivanovich loved the nightlife, loved the parties and the pretenses of high society. As was written about the time, quote, at Kazan it was possible for a bachelor not to keep a table of his own, for there were at least 20 or 30 homes where people gather for dinner without being invited. After the meal and after coffee and chat of this and that, they all went their separate ways home for a little nap. In the evening, off we went again to a reception or a ball that always ended in a feast. Russians in the so-called high society pretty much kept to themselves in Kazan, traveling in tight circles where everyone on their level was accepted. It was a kind of a case system, you might say, which was not easily pierced. People couldn't move up and down this system. Aunt Pelagaya, as Henry Torat put it in his biography of Tolstoy, was, quote, a social butterfly of limited intellectual capacity. She had a kind heart, the brains of a sparrow. She harbored deep-seated resentments dating from her youth, and her aim was to enjoy herself. As Sofia Adrianovna Tolstoy remembers her, quote, she doted on archbishops, monasteries, and cloth of gold embroideries, which she made and gave to the churches and convents. 
She also loved good food and liked to decorate a room tastefully, giving long thought the position of a divan, for example. You know, thinking back on my childhood, Aunt Pelagaya was a lot like my mother when it came to doting on the hierarchy of the church. I mean, we had bishops visiting and metropolitans, uh, and the local priests would come by, and you know, we always had someone there, and she would always dote on them, and like, oh, gosh, there's you know, incredible people, and you have to you know, invite them over and make these incredible meals. She sounded like a lot like Pelagaya, except my mom was a pretty intelligent person, but she was quite the social, social butterfly. But I digress. Now back to Kazan and Leo Tolstoy. We're now in 1843, and Nicholas had already entered the University of Kazan, with both Sergei and Dmitri joining him that year. Leo decided that while his brothers were enrolled in very academic subjects like mathematics, he, though, was going to join the diplomatic corps like his ancestors. Studying for this position included multiple languages like Latin, French, German, English, and some Arabic and Turco-Tatar. Before we go any further, though, I'd like to describe what the University of Kazan was and kind of what it wasn't. It was not what we would think of as a university today. It's more like a boys' school where appearances and sticking to the company line, in this case traditional Russian autocratic history and social studies were what was expected of you. You're not going to go off there and argue with your professor or come up with radical new ideas and debate things. You listened, you wrote down, and you passed your tests based on what they told you, not on what you thought was right. In 1804, the University of Kazan was elevated from an elementary school to that of a place of higher learning by edict of Tsar Alexander I. Most of the teachers were of German descent, and whenever a Russian would show promise or natural gift of intellect, he really actually found it very hard to move forward due to this inherent prejudice against native-born genius. The subjects taught were under strict control by the central government led by the reactionary now Tsar Nicholas I. Now, to get into the university, you had to be orthodox. There'd be no reading of the Koran in the land of a large Muslim population. There was no subversive or revolutionary teachings, even there were discussions allowed, as I mentioned before. This is in sharp contrast to the liberal talk of the universities in St. Petersburg and Moscow. Kazan and Leo Tolstoy were insulated from that. Now, before you start thinking that it was only in Russia that we have this prejudice, only Orthodox, you have this in England at places like Oxford and Cambridge. You have this at many different universities around the world where whatever the state religion was or the religion of that little area, those are the only people that could get in there. So this was not much different in Russia than it was in other places. Problem here is, studying was not one of Leo's strong suits, so the diplomatic life was not to be the career trajectory that would catapult the young Tolstoy. Instead, he discovered the nightlife, which his older brothers introduced him into. As an example, when he was just 14 years old, it was said that his brothers brought him to a brothel to make him a man. What's unique here is the brothel was supposedly only one room, uh, but really shockingly, it was housed in a monastery. Emotionally and intellectually, Leo had a hard time with the thought of enjoying sex and the debauchery, yet he felt utterly guilty. Now this was to follow him for the rest of his life until the day he died. 
Sex and morality was one of the issues that was to permeate much of his writing as well. He had such an incredible lust for women, but he actually had a moral revulsion to the act of sex after the fact. As hard as it was morally for Tolstoy to engage in sex before marriage, it didn't stop him. By the time he was 18, Leo contracted gonorrhea. The treatment at the time was total isolation, and, and this you may want to hold your ears for this one, liquid mercury injected into the male organ. Now, this was obviously not a very pleasant thing to go through. At the time at the VD clinic in Kazan, he had a very self-reflective period. He had never been alone in his life, and as he put it in his diary, it is six days since I entered the clinic. I've had gonorrhea from the source where you usually get it. The diary that Leo was to write in for the rest of his life started here in the Venereal Disease Clinic. What's fascinating to me about this diary is who he wrote about himself. Well, you're going to go, wait a minute, that's not very odd for your own personal diary. But what's strange is that's really all he wrote about. Nothing about his surroundings, per se, or about others in his life, unless it had a direct bearing on himself. Extremely self-centered. It was here he began to ask the eternal question many people his age ask. What is the meaning of my life? The day was April 17, 1847. Two days later, he decided to leave Kazan University. While he didn't find the answer to his question quite yet, he did decide that the university life and a career as a diplomat just wasn't for him. He asked for a leave of absence from the school and was given it without question. So, why did he really decide to leave? Well, first off, he wasn't a very good student, having failed the previous exams on things like basic geography. And really surprising to me was he failed on Russian history. Maybe he needed to get our podcast you know, going. But anyway, that wasn't really something that young Leo Tolstoy should have had a problem overcoming. The real reason we believe he left was huh, money. He came into his inheritance. He was now a wealthy young man with a lust for adventure. But there was another moral dilemma that faced the young man, and that was how he would conduct his life. He decided, as the writer he would be, to create a set of rules on paper for the next two years of his life that went something like this, and again, this comes from his diary. One, to study the whole course of law necessary for my final examination at the university. Kenny wants to go back, but not to Kazan. Two, to study practical medicine, and some theoretical medicine. Three, to study languages, French, Russian, German, English, Italian, and Latin. Four, to study agriculture, both theoretical and practical. Five, to study history and geography. Good idea. Didn't do too well on that one. Six, to study mathematics, uh, the grammar school course. Seven, to write a dissertation. Eight, to attain a degree of perfection in music and painting. Nine, to write down rules. Pretty good here. Ten, to acquire some knowledge of the natural sciences. And eleven, to write essays on all the subjects I study. Of all the things on the list, looks like only number nine and eleven to write down rules, which he did very well, as you can see, and to write essays on subjects he studied. That was all that was accomplished to any degree over the short term. Now, he did, on, as he went on in his years, 
become fairly competent in a number of the items on the list. Now, back to the inheritance. There was a debate amongst the brothers going on as to how to handle the younger sister Mariah's future. Since only the males were allowed to share in their father's fortunes, and you can thank Emperor uh, Tsar Paul I for that one, they had to take care of her out of their shares, which they did with, without any hesitation. They gave her the estate at Poragev, which was about 2,500 acres large and had about 150 serfs on it. Not too shabby, but not really very large by Russian nobility standards. As for Leo, he got the estates as Yasenki, Yogodnoya, Mostovoya, Pushtosh, and Yasnaya Polyana, along with 330 souls. He now owned over 4,000 acres of land. Oh, sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Well, it's, as I said before, way lower than the aristocrats of the day, who would be expected to own over 500 serfs and lots more land, but hey, still better than 99.9% .9 of the Russian population. That's the 0.1% there. Leaving Kazan, Leo headed to his birthplace, Yasnaya Polyana. When he arrived, he saw how it deteriorated and how poor the peasants living there were. This was in a state of great history that looked like it had seen its best days behind it. Tolstoy knew in his heart he had to bring it back to its glory days. This was yet another task that Leo would try to accomplish, adding to the ever-growing list of things to do. What he wanted to do, though, was not easy. The peasants looked at anything that was done for their benefit with great suspicion, like, what are you trying to get out of me? You're giving me something, I know you want to get something out of it. Now, the other problem was the cost of improving the lives of the serfs. Leo tried to build a school for them, but after a few years he had to close it down due to a lack of funds. Now, this problem was occurring all over Russia. It was one of the main reasons why serfdom was really abolished. Lest we think that Tsar Alexander II wanted to free the souls of Russia through his magnanimous heart. And by the way, uh, it was during this week that I'm reading this podcast, doing it, that Alexander signed the Emancipation Proclamation for the serfs. Uh, you got to think again if this was just because he wanted to do the right thing. It was pushed through mainly because the holding and carrying of serfs was becoming more and more difficult for the Russian gentry and was actually bankrupting many nobles. It was holding back the economy. It could no longer continue to hold serfs. This was something that was going to become apparent in the United States with slavery ending in the 1860s to war over it, but it was an economic system that just wasn't working anymore. A lesson I've learned over the many years of studying history is quite often the reasons for major events happening was rarely due to some moral high or low ground being taken, but pure economics. Now, let's face it, Hitler would never have come to power if not for the global depression of his times. Same for Lenin and the Bolsheviks, really. Had the economic situation been better, even with the casualties of World War I besieging the Tsarist regime, had the people had a better financial status, if they had more bread, they had more money, they would have been real reluctant to stage the crippling strikes that brought down Nicholas II and precipitated the Russian Revolution. Time at Yasnaya Polyana was not the idyllic period that Tolstoy wanted it to be. 
Gone were the days of childhood innocence, the playtime with his brothers and father. He was now responsible for everything that went on there, and it bored him to no end. Now the boredom of the Russian country estate engulfed many a nobleman and their families, and I wish I had learned of this, really, in the uh, previous podcast series on the Russian country estate. I think it was an idealized uh, period by the books I've been reading. But here with Tolstoy, they really bring out the fact that it was a very boring place to live. I mean, the cities like Moscow, St. Petersburg, and even Kazan are far more entertaining and exciting than the country and the landed peasant life. Because basically, you had your neighbor a couple of miles away who was high society, and you had all these peasants around you who were, for the most part, totally uneducated. But Leo looked upon the simple life of the peasant with a strange jealousy. He felt that their life was one of real meaning, with little of the responsibilities that came with being part of wealthy society. Tolstoy would carry this jealousy and guilt for the rest of his life, and even afterwards with the founding of organizations like the Tolstoy Foundation in the United States, which would carry on the vision he had of helping those less fortunate than himself. I had met a number of people when I was a child in New York who were involved in the Tolstoy Foundation and had great esteem amongst the Russians. Uh, try as he might to help the peasants on his estate, he saw some of the reality was this, that was the serf's life. One time, he was approached by one of his servants, complaining about an old cow of his and how hard it was to take care of the sickly animal. When Leo went to buy the cow to help the guy out, he saw that there was absolutely nothing wrong with the animal. The serf was just too lazy to do anything with it. On another occasion, when he saw the horrible living conditions of one of his souls, he offered to build him a new house but was meant with pleas to allow them to stay in their broken-down hovel. He realized that many wanted to stay the same way as generations before them had lived. All the social reforms that Tolstoy wanted to implement were dealt with smiles and nods. But after the lectures on how life could be so much better, they went right back to their sorry lives. The young man of 21 could not understand why they refused to change. Here's an incident that was very telling in his frustration. Quote, Assembled before the steps were a woman in blood-stained rags, screaming that her father-in-law had tried to kill her. Two brothers, who had been quarreling over the division of their property for two years, glaring at each other with loathing. A grizzled, unshaven old house servant with the shaking hands of a drunkard, whom his son, the gardener, had bought to the master to be scolded. A mujik, would run his wife out of his house because she had not done a stroke of work all spring, and the wife in question, sick and sobbing, not uttering a word, sitting there on the grass in front of the steps, holding out her swollen leg, wrapped in dirty rags. As Troyette put it in his biography of Tolstoy, quote, the young master swallowed his distate, swelled out his chest, and calling upon the vast stores of his inexperience, scolded some, consoled others. Then, with a feeling compounded of weariness, shame, helplessness, and remorse, he went back to his room. Amid all the boredom and moral indignations, Tolstoy began to lay the foundation of what would become his literary heritage. He began to read books that would open up his mind to what feelings were possible 
to express with words. In his diary, he listed those works he read at that period and the degree of admiration for them and how much they influenced him. Here's the list along with his comments. The Gospel According to St. Matthew, immense influence. Stern's Sentimental Voyage, very great influence. Rousseau's Confession and Emile, immense influence. La Nouvelle Heloise, very great influence. Pushkin's Eugene Onegin, again, very great influence. Schiller's The Robbers, very great influence. Gogol's The Overcoat, Ivan Ivanovich, and the Nevsky Prospect, great influence. Vi, immense influence. And the same with Dead Souls. Turgenev's A Sportsman's Sketches, very great. Trujian's Pauline Sachs, very great. Grigorovich's Anton Goromika, also very great influence. Charles Dickens' David Copperfield, immense influence. Lermontov's A Hero of Our Time, very great influence. And Perscott's Conquest of Mexico, great influence. Once done, he began to yearn for the more cosmopolitan lights of the big cities, like Moscow, where he headed to once again in 1849. With all the rules of behavior down on paper, we see kind of young Leo throw them all out the window and act the part of a sometime gambler, sometime womanizer, both of which, especially the gambling, put, into, put him into deep debt. Tolstoy was forced to beg his brother Sergei for money to pay off his increasingly impatient debtors. Paying some off, he hightailed it back to Aunt Toinette and Yasnaya Polyana. For the coming months, he played around with the peasant girls and gambled with his neighbors. None of this satisfied Leo, so yet again he headed back to Moscow. But within a short time period, he began to build up debt because of his depraved gambling. And as I said in Dostoevsky, he was a gambler, but Tolstoy had him beat easily. So again, he went back to his childhood time, childhood home, but this time he saw bigger events shaping up in Russia. Something he could get into, get away from his gambling. It was the conflict brewing between the Turks and the Russians, which would soon turn into the Crimean War. Join me next time as we follow Leo and his brother's enlistment into the army, his time fighting at the siege of Sevastopol, and the start of his literary career. Thanks for listening, and again, thanks to all of you who have donated to the podcast. It's all really greatly appreciated. So now, as always, das vidanya i spasibo bolshoya.